Yeah, I just want to say thanks to Danielle and the worship team for leading us in just excellent praise and worship of God this morning. And Jeff, thank you for leading us in prayer. And when you said beloved Pastor Dave, I got to admit that, put a, that brought a smile to my face. You are beloved as well. I love you as well. All of you. Yeah. Isn't it great to be together? Yeah, it is. If you don't know me, I am Dave Heinrichs. I'm one of the pastors here. And if we haven't met, just encourage you after the service, I'd love to meet with you and get to know you more. And uh, yeah. Well, before we dig into the word this morning, I would like to stop and pray again. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you so much for already the ways that you have guided us this morning in our service to love and praise you. And we, we believe and trust that this brought joy to you, Lord. That's what we long to do, to worship you, for you are so worthy. But we also want to be equipped and to be encouraged in our faith, to grow in our walk with you, Jesus. And so I pray that as we open the word, uh, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, several years ago on Christmas Eve, one of my sons, he was, he was being a rascal. And you know what children who misbehave before Christmas historically get in their stockings, don't you? Like coal. But coal is messy, and I didn't have any on hand. But my son hates onions, and I had a whole bag of those. And so I took a couple of these onions, and I lovingly wrapped them in some colorful tissue paper and gently placed them in the top of his stocking. And the next morning, as my boys ran downstairs in great anticipation, my son reached into his stocking, and he pulled out these two beautiful orbs, and as he unwrapped them, this look of disgust and utter contempt was displayed on his face, and he took these two onions, and he slammed them down and said, I don't want these. Now, some of you are thinking to yourself, that that was an awful trick, like, oh, he's a monster, and he's our pastor. And others of you are thinking, that's hilarious. And you, you would be correct. It is hilarious. And he thinks so too now. That's because teasing is something he also loves to do. He gets it from me. He imitates what I do. Now, not surprisingly, my father, he's probably watching at home, he also loves to tease, although he's not nearly as creative or funny as I am, but he is far more humble, and my grandfather, my dad's dad, he was the biggest teaser of them all. And so this attribute has been passed on from one generation to the next. Now, I certainly do not want my children to emulate all of my attributes because I am far from perfect, but... Just as my dad and grandfather like to joke around and have fun, and I followed in their footsteps, I do hope that my kids will imitate the good things that I, and particularly Andrea, demonstrate in our relationships with others. And in the Sermon on the Mount that we have been walking through, Jesus tells his followers that this is how they are to live. Not necessarily teasing one another, but following in his footsteps. Emulating his character, disciples are to treat others the way that God has treated us, with kindness, generosity, and love. And in today's passage, 
Jesus tells us that we are to imitate the Heavenly Father. So do good to others. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. And we're going to be looking at verses 7 through 12. And it will also be on the screen overhead. But I'd encourage you to keep your Bible open as we go through these. Matthew 7. These are the words of Jesus. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you, then though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything... Do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah, the reason why we do that, because what, regardless of whatever else is set up here, we know that this is a good gift from God, right? Yeah. So these Six verses, they demonstrate for us once more how much the Sermon on the Mount and our walk with Jesus all have to do with our relationships. Throughout this series, we have seen that Jesus has emphasized our need for righteousness over and over again. And biblical righteousness is all about right relationships. It's about harmony in our relationship, not only with God, but with ourselves, with the creation, and harmony with other people. And here we see it again, that we cannot separate our relationship with God from our relationship with others. There is this symbiotic connection between the two where the health of one relationship, it impacts the other relationship. And in verse 12, we see Jesus make this connection clearly with the word so. So is a connecting word. It's like the word therefore. And in verse 11, he says, Your Father in heaven gives good gifts to those who ask him. So, in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. Do you see the connection? The reason that we are to treat others as we would want to be treated is because God treats us well. He gives us good gifts. We are supposed to mimic him. We are supposed to emulate him. Christians are to do good to others because we are imitating our Father in heaven who has done good to us. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. In verse 7, Jesus begins with, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Here, Jesus is once again encouraging his followers to pray. But he's not just urging us to pray, but he is actually instructing us how and giving us a reason to pray. So ask, seek, and knock. These are all imperatives to pray, but it's like it's an escalating scale, right? It's like my children, when they want something from me, first they will ask me, hopefully politely, But then, 
if I haven't met their expectation, then they will seek from me to satisfy the, their desire, the thing that they want. And if I still haven't given it to them, it's like they knock down my door to get whatever it is they are after. And this is kind of what Jesus is saying here. Now, I may not always appreciate the relentless nature with which my children pursue the things they want from me. However, I have to confess to you that their persistence often works out in their favor. But pray like this? Really, Jesus? I don't know about you, but I'm hesitant to repeatedly bring requests before God like that. I fear perhaps it'll seem like it's disrespectful. I don't want to bother God, let alone badger him. Or maybe we can believe that repeatedly praying about something shows a lack of faith or perhaps, you know, God didn't hear us the first time. But here Jesus is telling us not to be ashamed of persistently bringing our requests to God. He is telling us that God is not annoyed when we tenaciously appeal to him. Rather, God has endless patience, and he actually welcomes us to do it. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells his followers a parable in order to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He describes a widow who persistently pleads with a judge to grant her justice over her adversary, and the judge, he kept refusing, but eventually he said to himself, even though I don't fear God and I don't even care what other people think, but because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out. Jesus then compares and contrasts God to this ill-tempered judge. Like the judge, God will eventually bring about justice for people. However, Unlike the judge, God does not do it begrudgingly. He's not annoyed or bothered by our persistence, and we can never wear him out. Rather, God will always answer our requests because, as Jesus says here, he is our father, we are his children, and he loves us. So continue to bring your requests to God. Talk to him about your concerns, your desires, your hopes and dreams again and again and again. He does not get bored with you or annoyed by you. And though your prayers may seem repetitive to you, Jesus encourages us to do it. Ask, seek, knock. So that's how we should pray. But I also said earlier in these verses, Jesus he shares with us a reason why we should persevere in our prayers. And that's because God promises to answer them. I'll say that part again. God promises to answer our prayers. He says, For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Jesus is clearly saying that the reason to pray is that God answers prayer which sounds amazing, and, and it is. I have experienced answered prayer myself, and I can attest to the goodness of God, changing circumstances, bringing healing, fixing problems, restoring relationships, and this, these answers to prayer, it makes it so exciting and it encourages me to return to God in prayer again and again and again, except sometimes it seems like he doesn't answer my prayers. 
Like those times when we have prayed and prayed and prayed and it seems like we never get the answer we're hoping for. Or worse than that, we get exactly what we didn't want. Not the gift we were looking for, but what just seems like a couple of stinking onions. And I think about the families who have been praying to God for months now to provide them a home in this crazy rental market who are facing eviction from their current residence and have nowhere to go. Why has God not answered their prayer? Or the person who has asked God for employment that will pay them just enough to get by, but they just can't seem to get their foot in the door anywhere. Or I think about people who have prayed for health concerns that don't seem to be getting any better. It's challenging to persist in prayer when it doesn't seem like it makes a difference. My wife Andrea and I were discussing this just a couple of weeks ago. And how we have prayed since August, along with many of you, for improvement in her health. And she's struggling with long COVID and there doesn't seem to be much of an improvement. And sometimes I feel like, well, why should I continue to bother when God could heal her like that? Why has he not done it yet? And Jesus doesn't tell us. And I find it a little frustrating. It's a mystery. He's a mystery. And that mysterious nature of God, I think, is often what prevents us from persisting in prayer. His mysterious ways can cause us some doubts. They might lead us to think that God is so big and my problem is so small, so will he really take notice of me? Or we know there are much larger problems in the world today than just the ones that I am dealing with So does he really have time for my concerns? Personally, I am reluctant to even ask people for help because I don't like being a burden or inconveniencing other people. So I have no doubt that this also impacts my prayer life. So does God really want to hear about my problems? Or am I just being a nuisance? Does he really want to take the time to help me out? According to Jesus in these verses, yes, he does. Jesus tells us here that rather than appeal to God's mysterious nature, we need to appeal to his goodness. We need to appeal to what we know about his character. And then Jesus tells us what God's character is like. Here in verses 9 to 11, he tells us that God is like a good father who doesn't withhold good things from his children whom he loves. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And just like in his parable with the persistent widow, where Jesus compares and contrasts God with the judge, Here, Jesus compares the Heavenly Father with parents who are in his audience who are listening to his sermon at this time. And he says, hey, just like the responsible parents that many of you are, you know how to care for your children. God is also responsible to care for you. God wouldn't be mean and trick any of his kids by giving them a stone when they really need bread. And he certainly wouldn't be hurtful by tricking them with a snake instead of a fish. Now again, this is not an indictment of me giving my son onions, right? We went through that again. That was funny, not hurtful or mean. 
And I gave him many wonderful gifts that year and Christmases since. But that actually further highlights Jesus' point. God is a way better father than I am. Even though I make mistakes in parenting and I am sinful, I still love my kids and I happily provide them. I may happen to tease them every once in a while, but I still care for them deeply. And since my children can trust me to provide them with good gifts, even though I am evil, compared to the goodness of God, think about how much more trustworthy our Heavenly Father is to provide for us. You and I, we are sinful, and yet we still are committed to our loved one's well-being. God is holy. He is even more committed to our flourishing than you and I could even conceive. Our Father in Heaven loves us more than any parent loves their child, more than you love your sibling, your partner, your friends. God cares about you more than you love anyone or anything. And He is completely dependable and is never stingy withholding what you need or spiteful giving you something that will hurt you. However, I do think that we can learn a couple of other things about the nature of prayer from this parent-child relationship analogy that Jesus is using here. First of all, I believe that God answers all of our prayers. Jesus says it here. It's just that I don't believe he always answers them the way that we would like. Sometimes we ask for something and God says, yes, here it is. And he answers our prayer exactly as we want. Other times he says, no. And then still other times, he says, not right now. And it's those last two responses, the no and the not right now, that frustrate my sons the most when they ask me for something. For example, like most parents, my sons have asked for mobile devices, and Andrew and I have wrestled with knowing when is the appropriate time to entrust our boys with such things. Most children in elementary school have phones these days. Certainly by middle school, nearly every child in my kids' classes, except for them, almost all of them had mobile devices. My eldest son entered high school this year, and he still didn't have one. And we've said, not yet, for a whole lot longer than almost all of his friends' parents, which has been difficult for them at times. However, there was a Sunday a while back while we were driving home from church and one of the boys said to us, I may not understand or agree with your decision, but I respect it because you think you're doing what's best for me. I nearly crashed the car. <laughs> and I did say to him at this moment, please, please, please remember this moment now and remember what you just said to us. Especially when you're frustrated that you didn't get what you want or feel like you need it. Remember that we're not holding out on you. We just believe that we know what's best for you, and we are doing that. And though I often don't like it when God responds to my prayers with a no or not yet, God also only gives his kids good gifts, and he only gives them when he believes that the time is right. Our Heavenly Father knows what's best for us, and even though we may not understand or agree with his decisions, can we still respect him? Can we still trust that he is doing what is best for us? The second thing I think we can learn from Jesus' illustration of the parent-child relationship is that God longs for his children 
to approach him and to ask him for help. I know we can be hesitant to make requests from God. Perhaps this is because we're used to being independent or maybe we're reluctant because we don't want to come across as selfish. But it actually is asking is actually the natural thing children are supposed to do with their parents, isn't it? Some people could be concerned that, well, we might start asking for the wrong sorts of things. And Scripture certainly does uh, address that. In James 4, 3, James writes, When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with the wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So certainly it would be a little problematic if we were praying for luxury yachts or even for an upgrade to last year's iPhone. However, I think for most of us, most of us, our problem isn't that we are too eager to ask for the wrong sorts of things. I think for many of us, our problem could be that we question whether what we are asking God for is the right thing. Is it the best thing? is what I really desire even in God's will. Now, I remember when I was 26 and I had cancer, a friend came to visit me and he asked me, Dave, what are your prayers consisting of? And I said, mostly that I will live and that I won't suffer too much. And I'll never forget his response. He said, wouldn't a better prayer be that you honor God in your suffering? Say it again. He said, wouldn't a better prayer be that you honor God in your suffering? Now, I totally get what he was saying, and that certainly does sound like a courageous and honorable prayer. But I have to say, it certainly wasn't helpful in a moment in my life when I was already dealing with a lot of pain and struggles. But since that time, as I've thought about it, and in light of what Jesus says to us in this morning's passage, I think, wouldn't it be so terribly sad if my children were suffering and I could help them, but they were hesitant to ask for my help because they were far more concerned about honoring me in their suffering. Or they, they questioned um, the validity or the goodness of their request. Is it dad's will to end my suffering? Man, if my boys felt like that, I might question what kind of parent I had been that had them thinking like that. And when Jesus himself, God's only son, was overcome with grief, facing the cross and death, he had no problem asking God to rescue him from that. In Luke 22, we read that he prays, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. The Apostle Paul, he also asked God to remove the painful thing that caused suffering in his life. And though God did not spare either Jesus or Paul from enduring the suffering they face, he did say no to both of their requests. God did, however, provide them with what they needed to endure the suffering and eventually for them both to overcome. Both Paul and Jesus show us that we do not need to second-guess our prayers, whether or not they are acceptable to God, and that we can and should bring our deepest desires to him. As theologian N.T. Wright says, if he is father, then let's treat him as a father, not as a bureaucrat, not as a dictator who would want 
who would not want to be bothered with our trivial or irrelevant concerns. When God says he still has got time, space, and love to spare for us, we should take him at his word. Now we come to the final verse in this morning's passage, verse 12, which says, So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. This verse is well known as the golden rule. On one level, it's Jesus' summary of the entire Sermon on the Mount. He began way back in chapter 5, verse 17, saying, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then over the next two chapters, Jesus adds his clarifying commentary to Old Testament commands, saying things like, You've heard it said, do not murder. I tell you, don't even get angry. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye. I tell you, turn the other cheek. Now he says, here near the end, he says, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. And we're thinking, man, we could have saved ourselves a whole lot of time if we would have skipped right here at the beginning. But this golden rule of Jesus is, it seems so simple, perhaps a little too simple. But even though it is easy for us to comprehend and recite, it is definitely not an easy one to live out. It is countercultural. There are other rules which you and I come by far more naturally. Like the tit-for-tat rule. You know that one, don't you? That is the rule where you do to others what they have done to you. For example, if they've done something nice for you, you do something nice back. So they bake you some banana bread, you bring them some muffins. However, if they do something wrong to you, well, like let's say they criticize your sermon, you make fun of their outfit, right? <laughs> That's the tit for tat rule. Or there is the rule, don't do to others what you wouldn't want others to do to you. Many parents, including myself, we have used this one to instruct our children. It can be heard scolding around the neighborhood. You wouldn't like it if someone did that to you, would you? In Jewish folklore, there's a story about a Gentile who was, came up to Rabbi Hillel, who was a very famous rabbi, and he said, hey, I'll convert to Judaism if, on the condition that you teach me the whole Torah while I stand on one foot. Rabbi Hillel responded by saying, what is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. This is the whole Torah. The rest is commentary. Go and learn. Now that sounds very familiar to what Jesus says, right? But though Hillel's do no harm maxim, it's a huge advance over the tit-for-tat rule. There's still a big difference between what he says and Jesus. There's a big difference between doing not doing something in order to prevent others from suffering versus doing something to relieve the pain of others or to bless them. Jesus' command is about putting another person's welfare above your own. He doesn't say, when you do something to others, do that, do what you would have them do to you. No. He's telling us we need to be proactive. He says, do to others. Go out of your way. Take the initiative and do for them what you would want to be done for you. Jesus' golden rule is what real love looks like. Notice the occasion when we are supposed to act this way. 
he says, in everything. So not just when it suits us, but in every occasion, we are to do good. And then notice to whom our actions are to be directed. To others. So Jesus leaves it wide open who the people are that we are to treat well. It's not just our family and friends or the people like us. It's not just to other Christians. Rather, it is everyone, including the other. People who are least like us. The people that we don't get along with. The enemy that Jesus commanded us to love back in chapter 5, verse 44. Another way of saying Jesus' command is, no matter the situation you're in or the people you find yourself with, imagine that you were them, how would you want others to treat you? Now do that. Following this command, it's not easy. It is truly inconveniencing yourself for the other person. The Apostle Paul said something similar in Philippians 2 when he wrote, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. This golden rule, it's fantastic. But the more I think about it, the harder it seems and the more I realize I simply cannot do this by my own willpower or in my own strength. And so that is why I am convinced why Jesus connects this golden rule command with his exhortation for us to pray to the Father. Because if we are going to live like this, we're going to need his help. Jesus not only assures us, though, that God will give us his help and good gifts, but Jesus he is God's help, and he is God's greatest gift. Through Christ's death, we have the forgiveness of our sins. Through his resurrection, we have the hope of eternal life. When we trust in Jesus, we can have our relationship with God restored, and by living according to his ways, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can begin to restore our relationship with others, with ourselves, with the creation. And God, our Heavenly Father, who loves you and me and has done so much good for us, he is calling us to imitate him and do good to others. Maybe you're wondering, where do I even begin with this? I think we begin where Jesus began with the words this morning, to start by praying. And maybe you want to ask, you want to start by praying for somebody that God has already put on your heart, or maybe that's where you want to start by asking God to put someone on your heart. And then you can ask yourself, now if I were them, if I were in their shoes, in their situation, what would I want to be done for me? And maybe the answer comes to you right away, but maybe it's far more than you're actually able to do. That's awesome. Pray about it some more. Or if you're at a complete loss, for how you can help another person. You can take an even bolder approach and you can go up to them and you can say, how can I help you? And that person may have an idea right there or it might come to them later. For many of us, I think regularly reading through the Sermon on the Mount or the Gospels is a great reminder to us how we should be treating others. It not only brings to mind Jesus' commands, but 
Seeing how Jesus treated other people reminds us about how kind he has been to us. Having experienced God's mercy myself should help me to extend mercy to others. Just as we have received forgiveness, we imitate him when we also forgive other people. We can live out this golden rule by turning the other cheek, by being faithful in our relationships and in our speech, by trying to help others out of humility and not condemning. When we live according to the way of Jesus found in his Sermon on the Mount, we extend to others the very love of God that we have experienced ourselves when we accepted his invitation to become citizens of the kingdom of God. I want to invite the worship team to come on up as I close. So at the end of his sermon, Jesus, he, gives, he says this little parable, this little illustration. He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice like a wise, is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. So we have a choice to make. Are we going to build our lives on the words of Jesus or ignore them? Are we going to live as citizens of God's kingdom or are we going to continue to live according to the rules of our own kingdoms? Living your life according to Jesus' words found in the Sermon on the Mount, it's definitely not easy. It is countercultural. It doesn't come naturally. Jesus says that it is hard work, like building a house on the rock. And if you compare it to life built on the sand, that one probably looks a whole lot easier, maybe even more attractive. But Jesus says the wise will build it on his words because it will save them from catastrophe. In another story I love, uh, Jesus said some hard things and a whole bunch of his followers, they all left him because they found what he expected of them and his words too difficult. And Jesus turned to his closest followers. He said, so what are you going to leave me to? And I love how the apostle Peter responds. He says, to who would we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. So I would invite you, if you have come to believe that Jesus is the Holy One of God, to build your life on his words. These are the words of life, of flourishing life, of eternal life. They may be hard to understand and live out, but I pray that we would make them the foundation that we build our lives upon. Would you stand with me and we pray? Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your great love for us and that you know how to give us good gifts. I pray that we would just be encouraged to continue to persevere in prayer for all the, the things that are on our hearts and minds, the burdens that we all have. But help us to continue to trust you, to know that you love us, that you know what's best for us and that you are caring for us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.